Now, if you'd like to turn your Bibles, please, to Jeremiah chapter 17. And it's amazing how the Lord works. The, the hymns, which sometimes we have no say in, can have such meaning to the message to come. So praise the Lord for just those little things. But if you'd like to turn to Jeremiah chapter 17, we're going to start reading from verse 7. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 7. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters and that spreadeth out her roots by the river and shall not see when heat cometh, but her leaf shall be green and shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We'll just commit our time to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the uh, blessing of your word. There can be a guidance and that you can lead us through it, Father, but we also thank you that it can be a rebuke. And Father, we just uh, pray that we have the, the hearts uh, for this message. I pray for my lips, Lord, that they will uh, give the right words and that they will glorify you. And we just pray for this time and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning I'd like to begin with an excerpt from a poem, of all things. Now, some of you have likely heard it. You'll probably recognise it. I was hoping that Pastor Davies would be here because I'm sure he would recognise it. It was written around 1804 by the English poet William Blake. It's entitled, And Did Those Feet in Ancient Time? And the poem's only four verses long, but I'm only going to read the first half. And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green? And was the holy lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen? And did the countenance divine shine forth upon our clouded hills? And was Jerusalem builded here among these dark satanic mills? Now, like many works of art, there is plenty of subjectivity to be had. Uh, the two prevailing interpretations of this poem are that it was a critique of the Anglican orthodoxy, uh, particularly relating to class stratification throughout England at the time. Uh, the other, and certainly more common opinion, is that it was a response to the effects of the Industrial Revolution taking place across the countryside of England, Wales and Scotland. A man named William Henry King, he was a teacher of English but also a preacher of the scriptures, had this to say of that poem. During that dark period of our history, when the country was passing from the beauty of its agricultural life into the wild welter of black industrialism, the soul of the land passed under a cloud. The age was one of discontent, but a noble discontent. It found its voice in Blake, who pondered on the dark satanic mills. Now, irrespective of Blake's intent in his poem, the term dark satanic mills has entered our uh, lexicon to mean basically the same thing as the Industrial Revolution sentiments. Uh, and it's used figuratively to essentially demonize something progressive, particularly technologically. The former idea is seen as a reflection of the anger and the despair that people felt at the time towards the industrialization of their landscape. Uh, new technologies, such as steam-powered machinery, meant that small cottage industries would go bankrupt and be consolidated into the larger factories at hand. 
An independent miller that would normally produce small amounts of flour could not match a factory producing thousands of bushels per week, sending them destitute or forcing them into the employment of this powerful competitor. With this came many environmental, societal, economic uh, problems. But the idea of associating Satan with this form of progress is equally open to interpretation. And many of these claims were based on nationalistic tendencies. And since the Industrial Revolution, man has truly advanced technologically. And we are seeing, even in our own lifetimes, that this is happening faster and faster. In the last 12 months, and particularly in the last six months, there's been a lot of attention in the news uh, regarding the newest of technologies, that is artificial intelligence, or AI as it's shorthand. In fact, I would say that a lot of it is more hyperbole than news, but it's quite staggering. It's either the greatest thing man has invented or it's the worst. Now, a couple of months ago, I did a presentation to our seniors ministry. We call them the VIPs. Uh, I didn't know it meant very important person, uh, very interesting person, not very important person. Pastor Davies was a temporary VIP not too long ago. And I did a presentation on a biblical understanding of AI. And because I had a lot of people comment afterwards that those who were um, stricken by youth and couldn't attend the seniors ministry would have liked to have heard the message, I thought, well, I might see if I can find a way to make it into a proper pulpit message instead. But the interesting thing was on the day that I did the message to our seniors, I was still writing material down because it was so frequently changing the narrative of what I was going to talk about. And that is how fast AI is progressing in terms of its uh, understanding and its acceptance. And to be honest, I was fairly ambivalent about the topic. I wasn't quite interested, uh, even though I work somewhat in IT. And it wasn't until I was fooled by an AI-generated picture of the Pope that I suddenly realized, wow, um, okay, I, I'm just as susceptible to deception by AI as everyone else. And it started that question of, well, what is a biblical understanding of this new technology? And to that end, there is one simple answer. The scriptures are timeless, therefore, there is a timeless interpretation. And so this morning, I want to look at this subject a little bit, because as the old saying goes, forewarned is forearmed. And we're going to weave around the topic a little bit. It might seem a little unusual the way I'm going, but hopefully at the end it will make sense. But to help establish this, I'll just put this argument to you. If we want to understand computers, we have to understand man. I want to address this subject then through three points, and each is going to build on the preceding. But I think just for the sake of consistency, a simple definition of AI so that we know where we're starting from uh, will help. So AI is very simply defined. The ability to do something as directed, instructed, or guided by a human, and the outsourcing of human work to that AI. So as I begin my first point, I just ask you keep that in mind as we go through the message that AI at its basic core relies on humanity or human created material to have a purpose or a direction or an understanding. 
So we'll turn back to our opening reading, Jeremiah chapter 17, and we'll just reread verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? In chapter 17, God, through Jeremiah, is rebuking Judah, the nation of Judah, for its wickedness and idolatry that they had inquired of in the preceding chapter. It's broken down into three sections, one that describes Judah's plight, Jeremiah's prayer for deliverance from their plight, and the Lord's directive to maintain the holiness of the Sabbath. Now, verse 9 places us squarely in the first section regarding their rebuking for their idolatry. But this does not mean that the message in hand is just strictly for Judah. Judah had chosen to place their trust in the safety of man and to pursue the carnalities of man's heart and not God's. Now, while this chapter is very specific in its context and purpose, uh, specifically regarding Israel and Judah's alignment with Egypt and Assyria against the directives of God, there is great universality in these verses. The Lord poses a question to Judah that not only convicts them of their sin, but affirms his holiness and omniscience. We read again, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And almost as if answering it before Judah can answer it, he says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Now, try the reins is a very archaic expression. There's a few interpretations that I found, but the general consensus is that it means the inner parts. Even though inner parts in the torso, they're referring to the mind, the thoughts, the intents of the heart. Now, what we're told through these two verses is that the Lord searches or examines the heart and the inner places of man. And what does he find? He finds that the heart of man is desperately wicked. Today, the world almost seems to relish in the nuances of good and evil, uh, blurring the line between the two. Wickedness is ascribed to influences of environment or upbringing or even disease. Just in the news this morning, Israel is facing attacks from Palestine. And I have little doubt that the media narrative will paint a blurry line between the two. Neither one will be the aggressor, neither one will be the the victim. But frankly, this kind of approach is a cop-out. The world says these things, that there is a greyness in people's actions and hearts because they want to alleviate sin. At the end of the day, without Christ, without God, there is only sin. When we come to the Lord and we confess our sin and repent and seek that salvation that he offers, it's not a negotiatory experience. We don't justify some sins. We confess that they were all sins before a holy God. Yet when we read that verse at the start again in Jeremiah, I challenge that we should reflect further on the fact that the Lord sees into the heart. It's not merely the fact that God can read the inner parts and the true nature of what we're doing and the why, but it's the fact that only God is capable of seeing through it. I remember when I was not saved, but on the 
the path to being saved, so the road to the road to Damascus, I guess. And I didn't grow up in a Christian household. I had next to no understanding of doctrine, of matters regarding the Lord. And I remember I was told, the Lord knows everything you think. And I was dumbfounded. In all honesty, I'd never heard such a thing before. And it, it shattered my foundations. It was one of the things that brought me to the Lord, was that realisation that even the things I think when no one else is around, the Lord knows them. David Guzik's commentary on Jeremiah says this, The heart is not only deceitful, but also wicked and desperately so. Many have been led to rebellion, disobedience, and great sorrow by following their heart without challenging their heart and judging it by the measure of God's truth. Follow your heart is poor advice when the heart is desperately wicked. And we think about what the world says. How often do people say, I want to leave my family and travel to a foreign country and become spiritual? Just follow your heart. You're forsaking your family. You're leaving them destitute. That's just one example. I'm sure if we all just put our hands up and gave one example, we'd run out of time of times where people have said to us, follow your heart on something, irrespective of the consequences, irrespective of what God would say. In Proverbs 28, 26, Solomon writes, He that trusteth in his own heart is a fool, but whoso walketh wisely, he shall be delivered. Now, none of this is unique to Judah or even to Israel. We'll turn to Luke 6.4, uh, sorry, 6.43, and we'll see that the Lord Jesus Christ spoke of very similar sentiments. Luke chapter 6, verse 43. Christ speaks. For a good tree bringeth not forth corrupt fruit, neither doth a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. For every tree is known by his fruit. For of thorns men do not gather figs, nor of a bramble bush gather they grapes. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. Now to that I say, what doctrine? What convicting doctrine that is. We live in a world where there are two mutually exclusive binaries. A heart that fears and serves the Lord, or a heart that serves man's whims and desires. There can be no neutrality between those two. I remember the first time I read the book of Matthew, and my first review, uh, my first comments on the book after I'd finished it, was that it felt so timeless in its composition. And here we see that again in Luke with the use of fruit. Fruit is rotten or it isn't. Milk is sour or it isn't. There's, there's no two ways about it. But there is no culture or peoples or society in the whole world that can't draw an understanding from this simple yet potent illustration. As Jesus Christ said to the Jews on the mount, no man can serve two masters. And in light of the dynamic of service and mastery, this brings me to my second point, and that is an example of what has the mastery of the heart 
and how this then extends towards the objects in our daily lives. But before that, I want to introduce yet another definition. I love words, you've probably picked up on that from my messages. There's so much power within words and sometimes they just, they need to be stripped down and dismantled in order for us to get a good point across. And as I mentioned, one of the definitions of AI was it being something that human work is outsourced to. And I contend then that at its simplest definition, AI is simply a tool. Rather than me having to raise my voice, we have the microphone. Rather than me having to stand on my two legs, I can rest on the pulpit a little bit. These are just little things that help us do things that we're doing. They're tools. Tools are also interchangeable with other words such as instrument or technology. Essentially, they're devices to make a task easier. A tool can only be useful though when it's employed by a person. A shovel lying in a field doesn't do much without a human's input. And so now that we have an awareness of what the heart of man is like, let's examine the scriptures to see the exercising of this heart particularly in the example of labour and tools. Now, I have two case studies, they're very closely tied together and will hopefully strengthen the point. But to get through those two case studies, we're going to flick quite a bit in Genesis chapter 2, 3 and 4. So if you want to turn to there, and maybe put your bookmark there too actually. We'll start from Genesis chapter 2. Now I am going to jump a little bit, so I'm just going to read through all the relevant verses just very quickly. Genesis chapter 2 verse 5. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth and there was not a man to till the ground. Then we'll go to verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Then we'll go to Genesis 3.23. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. And then we'll jump to verse, uh, chapter 4, starting at verse 1. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel... He also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. Now in Genesis chapter 2, we see Adam is twice entrusted with the responsibility of tilling the ground. Now the Hebrew word used here implies work of a laborious or servitude-like nature. This doesn't necessarily imply the use of tools, and in the perfect Garden of Eden, I find it very hard to comprehend how work would be undertaken. Uh, the scriptures show us that Adam didn't need to water the garden because the Lord did that. Presumably there were no weeds that had to be removed until the fall. 
and I can't really visualize there would have been any dead wood for Adam to craft a tool out of. Uh, it's pointless to speculate. But if we read on in Genesis chapters 3 and 4, all of the uses of the word till and tilling, which again are the same Hebrew word, denote that labor is being burdened upon man from the very start of creation. But when we trans transfer from chapter 3 to chapter 4, that burden is intensified by the fall. And I'm sure some of you here are familiar with farming. Coffs Harbour, we don't have too many farming uh, people in our church. But the idea of labour is probably something you're very familiar with. But the interesting thing is there's actually two instances in these early chapters of what I call laborious actions. Now, we've seen Adam with the responsibility of tilling the ground, but let's just flip back to Genesis 3 and verse 7. Now, this is straight when the fall is happening. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. Now, we've seen, as I just said, the instance of Adam having to till the ground as an act of labour. Now, I don't want to over-represent ideas here, but it's interesting how we have the husband-wife dynamics of labour represented in these two examples, the man labouring in the field and the woman labouring in what could be called the first domestic duties. Now, how they sewed the fig leaves together, I, I don't know. <laughs> Matthew Henry suggested that they plaited them together. The word sewed is only used four times in the scriptures. It's very specific to refer to sowing. In fact, it's a, contra it's a part of the contrasting statement of Ecclesiastes 3.7, a time to rend and a time to sow, showing us that somehow they joined those fig leaves together, which would have taken time and effort, of which the Lord was fully aware of what they'd done, I should add. Now, we know, obviously, Genesis 3.17, the Lord puts the curse on the ground, thou shalt not eat of, uh, sorry, cursed is the ground for thy sake, in sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. And here is where we see the burden of labour is really placed upon man. And this brings us to chapter 4, where we see the example of Cain, who, even though he is a tiller of the ground, does not share the same privilege of labour that his father had prior to the fall, despite the same Hebrew word being used. Now, we're told that he brought forth the fruits of the ground, meaning that he was able to cultivate and till in some fashion. Of his brother Abel, though, we read, the Lord had respect unto Abel and his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering, he had not respect. And it's at this juncture we see the manifestation of the two paths that were spoken of in our opening reading. I'll just reread them, just a part of them. Jeremiah 17, verse 7, Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. And then in verse 7, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked, who can know it. The Lord, the discerner of hearts, sees through our intents, our devices, our actions. Of Cain and Abel's offering, it's no different. Matthew Henry writes, Perhaps to a standard by, the sacrifices of Cain and Abel would have seemed both alike good. Adam, that is, acting as the priest for the family, accepted them both, but God, who sees not as man sees, did not. 
God had respect to Abel and to his offering and showed his acceptance of it probably by fire from heaven, but to Cain and his offering he had not respect. And brethren, when you pause and just think on that, that's a terrifying realisation. What if that was our name? What if, it was, what if that was my name that the Lord had not respect for my offering? And this is just a, a brief pause, but are our sacrifices bare and half-hearted? Or are they the fitting definition of sacrifice? Are they something of loss to ourselves, something irreplaceable or hard-earned? Are we giving our figuratively spare change or that which we've worked hard for? Are we like the widow that gave her all to the temple in the New Testament? But nonetheless, we know what happens next. Cain, rebuked by the Lord, much like Judah in Jeremiah 17, is given a choice. Exercise trust in the Lord or in man's adulterated heart. Cain follows the latter and commits the first murder in history. It's amazing how much is in our Bibles and not too many of the sins you really know for sure this was the first time a certain grievous action was taken. But this is one of those few where we can say this was the first murder in all of history. Now it doesn't say how Cain killed Abel and supposition will get us nowhere. So regardless of whether it was his bare hands, a tool or just a natural object, what is important for us is that the wickedness of the heart was what drove him. Cain had the same free will choice that everyone here has, and he chose the worldly or the fleshly choice. Now, these weren't suppositional examples to imply tools where there's none. Uh, the text doesn't tell us. What we're seeing, though, in addition to man's subjection to labour, traced back to the garden but intensified after the fall, is the very first representation of a black and white position of mankind in expressing the heart's motivation through deeds. And now we're going to combine these ideas and look at these deeds manifest through objects, and that is tools, bringing us back to that idea of outsourcing of labour to something else. As we see in chapter 4, after Cain's departure, we do see the beginning of tools being used in the world, at least recorded. Verse 17, And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch. And he, that is Cain, builded a city, and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. And the following verses uh, continue through to the end of chapter 4, giving us the genealogy of Cain's descendants. And in doing so, we are introduced to their labours and progression of those labours. Verse 20, Jabal, the father of such as dwell in tents. Verse 21, Jubal, father of all such as handle the harp and organ. And verse 22, Tubal Cain, an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron. Here, we can see mankind is slowly introducing tools and instruments to either assist in labour or to entertain but all of which require more complex means of creation. Now, tents and musical instruments are not easily made, and I'm not knowledgeable on brass or iron, but I know that they're not crafted by hand. Albert Barnes's commentary examines the Hebrew renderings of the names of these people, 
And they give us insight to the professions and they are very expressive of people not only crafted in these fields, but to the extent that it shows it could not be done by hand. Interestingly, he adds, mankind is now formally divided into two branches, those who still abide in the presence of God and those who have fled to a distance from him. We don't know whether Seth's line was equally proficient in the making of tools or not. It certainly raises the question of whether the enticement of nice things of Cain's descendants may have drawn many away from Seth's lineage. We've seen that in the world today. The world draws people away from God with objects of desire, of interest. People say, well, why would I want to go to church on a Sunday when I can go to the beach or go to a concert, go to the movies? But Barnes puts it very succinctly. The digression of man is explored through Cain's lineage. Quote, he says, the progress of moral evil in the antediluvian world, that is the world before the flood, was manifested in fratricide, killing of Abel, and in going out from the presence of the Lord. It is curious to observe that ungodliness in the form of departure from God and the breach of the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, are the starting points of sin in the world. And this culminates in Genesis 6-5, and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. But that doesn't mean that it's the tools that are the problem. We know that Noah and his family were capable of using tools because they built the ark. And we also know that Noah's descendants were capable of building the Tower of Babel. Now, these examples are very quickly summarized for the sake of time, but they show us that man has had the ability to utilize tools for whatever purpose from the very early parts of creation. And as a tool, AI is equally beholden to the whims of man, which, as we can see here, defaults to a wicked heart if the Lord is not there. In preparing my message for our seniors ministry, I actually played around with a few AI tools to just get a bit of an idea of what I'd present to them because it was a slideshow presentation and they were a bit interactive, unlike a, a pulpit message. And I decided to pitch it some questions about Christianity. And it was very coy. It could answer certain questions, but there were others it intentionally deflected. And I suspect it was because they didn't want non-Christians to be offended. Whoever had instructed it had clearly established certain restrictions or parameters to which it would have to adhere, which is essentially a bias built into the technology, and frankly, that was setting off alarm bells straight away. During the seniors' presentation, I got someone to give me some ideas. I wanted the audience to participate, and we turned a novel, I can't remember which one it was, into a poem, which we then turned into Greek. Pastor Mitchell was too far away from the screen to be able to read it. And it did it in seconds. Now, that sounds pretty incredible, but I also gave them an example of, okay, it can generate this information very quickly. What's a topic I know that I'm very versed in? Well, I'm very well versed in certain parts of history. And I asked it very specific questions 
and it just gave me nonsense. In fact, it just lied to me. And that there is the beginning of problems. Academic misconduct is probably one of the biggest concerns with AI. And if you're trying to, it'd be one thing for me to try and fool everyone here over matters of doctrine, but if I went somewhere and tried to fool people who have no idea what the truth is, then they're gonna believe me regardless. And that's what AI can do. It may be unusual, but man is very good at taking inert, unblemished objects and corrupting them. Musical instruments can be used to defy God or they can be used to glorify him. And sometimes the inert objects around us can be literal, like the taking of a rock and injuring or killing someone with it, which is one of the theories of how Cain killed Abel. Sometimes it can be the symbolic. Think of the fig leaves of Genesis 3. Maybe they fell from the tree after sin came into the world. Maybe Adam and Eve plucked them from the branches. But once they did, they used those leaves to hide their sin from God. And they became expressions of man's sinful nature and deeds. The world takes the natural environment and defiles it with idolatry, carving out idols in wood and stone. I want to repeat Blake's words again from the beginning. And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green? And was the holy lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen? And did the countenance divine shine forth upon our clouded hills? And was Jerusalem builded here among these dark satanic mills? And were those flower mills of a satanic persuasion? It's not for me to say. The heart of man is in each of the people in that operation, be they the owner, the investors, an employee, the critics. But that's between them and God. Dire poverty, which was very well known at the time, would have probably compelled some to work there. Others may have done what they did in the full knowledge that they were causing damage to their community and environment. History, which I'm fairly well versed on, is replete with generalizations. And yet, we can't sit down and count the cost of each transgressor and the circumstance of their transgression. First, it would be impossible. And second, it's not our place to do. We must be wary of calling out the hearts of others because the Lord sees ours for what it is. And we have to remember that first. Are we like Judah? rebuked by Jeremiah, similar to Cain, following the vanities of man's heart? Or are we like Abel, offering our all? As Jeremiah said, blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. AI as a tool, like anything else we use, be it our cars, our mobile phones, cooking tools, whatever it is, they're just an extension of the individual that empowers it. We can use tools of any persuasion for the glory of God or in the service of the world. As for AI, its strength and weaknesses lie entirely at the humanly influence it is subjected to. But realistically, that is the same for every human construct in our world. It may be a new technology, but it's no different to its predecessors in a fallen world. It can be empowered by man's wickedness 
or by righteousness. And to close, we'll turn to Joshua 24. I just want to reaffirm the, the nature of this black and white aspect, that there is no neutrality. Joshua 24, verse 14 and 15. Now therefore, fear the Lord, and serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord." And much like Jeremiah 17, this is written in a very specific context towards Israel, but it is very much the same choice that Cain had and that we have. Brethren, if we've accepted that wonderful gift of salvation, then the choice is already made, but our responsibility is incumbent upon us. We have to serve the Lord in sincerity and in truth. And that includes the things that we use to exert our heart's intent. For those of you who may not have accepted the gift of salvation, then there is a choice here too. You can remain in sin and face the wrath of God, or you can seize the greatest gift that has ever been afforded to mankind. But in my house, I've declared that we will serve the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that... It can be a great reminder of the timelessness of man's uh, wickedness and your holiness, Lord. And Father, we just pray that our hearts will be pure, that we will align ourselves with you, Father, and that we will not trend towards the ways of the world. And Lord, we just uh, thank you for this time of worship and fellowship. We just pray for uh, the time to come and the message to come soon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.